Please grab your Bible. If you would, if you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, we say this every week. If you don't own a Bible, please let that be an early Christmas gift to you today. Um, we would love for you to keep that. Um, but we do invite you um, to join with us in our tradition. We always hold up our Bibles and say a creed together each week uh, to remind ourselves and to declare what we believe about this book. So if that's where you're at on your spiritual journey, then join with us in our tradition this morning as we declare this with confidence. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Please turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, it's page 697 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. And here's the deal. We're actually going to cover Daniel's chapter, uh, chapter 7 and 8. Uh, Lord willing, today. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to move really fast. Um, We're not going to read all of that, but I do ask that you would this week make that kind of part of your uh, time in God's Word this week to read all of that. Uh, Those of you who've been tracking with us through this sermon series, uh, you're going to feel like we did a U-turn this morning. Um, We're actually going to go back in time a little bit. There's some significant shifts in perspective that we're going to walk through. Uh, I told you last week Daniel was like mid-80s. We're going to go back to where he's very young in his mid-60s. You can enjoy that, those of you that that resonates with. Uh, He's going to go back to in his mid-60s. And so what we're going to land on is sort of the white space between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Um, The little white space between those two chapters is where we're going to land. Verse number 1 of Daniel chapter 7 says this, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So he is the one who uh, came into rule eventually after King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4. And then uh, this is the guy who sees the handwriting on the wall. But this is about Daniel having a dream. We've had a bunch of other dreams. We've had a bunch of pagan kings have dreams. Here, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And by the way, these are going to be some pretty troubling Visions. Ironically, last week he probably had a better night's sleep in the lion's den than he will have in chapters 7 and 8 this week. Um, But I want you to notice what he did. He wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. A couple things that are worth noticing here is we're shifting for the rest of the book of Daniel in a couple ways. Um, the, The first way that I don't want us to miss, it'd be really easy to miss this, but I don't want to rush past it. We're shifting from telling history to sharing a testimony. We're shifting from telling things that happen in other people's lives to sharing what God revealed to Daniel personally. Um, We've mentioned this a couple of times, but it's been several weeks. Uh, Most of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Chapters 1 through 6 mostly are written in Aramaic, which would have been the the language spoken in Babylon at the time. Like, it's kind of common. And here we have this ship shift back to Hebrew which was what most of the Old Testament is written in. And it's what we would call the Jewish heart language. Like he's talking from his heart. He's going back to the language that speaks to God's people and and speaks to who he is. He's shifting from, here's what happened in Babylon. Here's what happened in my life. Here's what God did big picture. And here's what God revealed to me. And what Daniel did is he wrote it down and then shared it. He journaled what God was doing in his life and then told 
somebody about it. And I don't want to miss the simplicity of that because I believe at some point in time, God wants all of us to move from just learning facts about him to sharing the story of what God's doing in our life with somebody who needs to hear it. Many of us have spent our entire Christian existence being absorbers, sponges of truth. And God's intention is that we would wring ourselves out for the sake of the faith of those around us. And Daniel doesn't just experience this. He writes it down and shares it. And it just might be that you're going to encounter somebody in the next 24 hours who needs to know what God's doing in your life too. You're like, well, I'm not Daniel. I've not had amazing visions of God. Here's the thing. They're pretty terrifying. Don't, Don't be sad about that. Maybe it's just a pretty ordinary story. And I just want to tell you, the reason that you and I know about Jesus is because somebody shared their story with us. And I don't want to miss the power of a testimony that's not the main point of the text, which we got to keep moving. Verse number two, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Somebody go get the drug test kit. Right? If somebody tells you that they had a dream like this, you're probably going to encourage them to get tested. Let's just be honest. This is going to get weird. Those of you who are like, man, I haven't been to church in six months and we're talking about beasts and visions. What just happened? H- hang with me because I think there's some really important things to unpack here. Ironically, this morning, the first person that I saw, the first person to show up on campus after I'd been here for a couple hours was Trevor, who said, man, I had the weirdest dream last night. Somebody was like trying to get into your house And I went over onto the neighbor's roof with a sniper rifle and killed them to protect you. This happened this morning. Really. I was like. (laughs) In the life of a pastor, there's no such thing as between us. Unless it's in counseling, that's protected by state law. Okay, anyways. um, Listen, the dream went on and got weirder. For sake of time, I'm not going to share all of it with you. But at some point in time, I would like to analyze that dream with you, Trevor. But if you're ever coming after me at my house, just know Trevor's on the roof next door. So let that be a warning to all of you. In this bizarre dream of Daniel, there's not just a shift from history that happened to testimony where God revealed things personally. We're also shifting from historical fact to prophetic visions of the future. We're going from history to prophecy. And for some of you, that's really bad news. You really enjoyed the stories up till now, and you kind of wish maybe we would end at Daniel chapter 6 and be like, let's just skip to Advent early this year. There tends to be two kinds of people. I've said, said this before since this time changed Sunday. There's two kinds of people. People who want to enjoy an extra hour of sleep when daylight saving time's in, and the people who want to just delay the day. And extend the day by an extra hour when we fall back, right? And then usually those two people marry each other and get annoyed at each other with how they handle time change. In the same way, there tends to be two types of people when it comes to prophecy. People who love it and people who really don't. So show of hands, I'm just kidding. 25% of the Bible that we just said is the word of God is prophetic. So if you don't love prophecy... I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just telling you it's a significant part of what God has to say. And a ton of that prophecy is about Jesus who would come. And for every prophecy that Jesus would come the first time, more than eight more prophecies are talked about that he's going to come again. 
So there's a lot of whispers of the future. And some of us don't understand them. Some of us are weirded out by it. Some of us just think it's entertaining. There's a lot of Christians who really enjoy discussing prophecy, not because it helps them worship God more. They just think it's interesting. Let's unroll a scroll and break a seal and let's do all this stuff. And here's the thing. The, the point of this is not so that we'd be smarter with facts, that we would anticipate more seeing the face of our Savior. I, I will confess to you, I'm a little bit more on the I don't enjoy prophecy side of things because... In my church experience, a lot of the people who talked about prophecy kind of made me feel like the super greasy used car salesman who was like, I'm selling my new book. And so I have this thing figured out that no one's ever figured out before. And if you really want to know what it is, you can pick it up in my book table in the back before we dismiss. Right. And the charts and the graphs and the super confident thing. And I remember sitting in uh, my undergrad in Bible college, and we were uh, doing a class on the book of Revelation. That, that was the, the whole semester was the book of Revelation. And the professor was just plowing through his notes that he had taught every other semester. But some really interesting uh, things had happened then in the late 1990s uh, that involved the Soviet Union's tremendous shift in power uh, since Mr. Gorbachev had torn down that wall and, and how the, the landscape was changing. And he super emphatically said, well, this is a clear reference to Russia. And I remember in the middle of class, he went, well, actually, maybe it's not. But he said it so authoritative and then went, oh, maybe not. And ever since that, I've been like, okay, if you say something super, super authoritative about what obviously is a bit mysterious, I'm just going to tend to be skeptical. And so what we want to do is we want to we draw out what's obvious in this and not avoid it because it is God's word. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. You do not have to understand all the particulars about a prophecy and not understand the point of the prophecy. So we might disagree even or just be confused by the particulars. But this morning, I really think God wants to see the point. So we're going to look at some of these prophecies and then we're going to look at what's the point of them. And some of these are prophecies that for us are looking backwards. For Daniel, they were looking forwards. For us, we're looking backwards at some of these prophecies, but some of them are still coming. And some of them are prophecies we've already covered. So we're going to move very quickly over some. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of our sermons from the book of Daniel, specifically the one on Daniel chapter 3, uh, where Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision of a great image, a great uh, statue, a great idol. That was made of all different metals, and it was a prophetic vision of the kingdoms that would come after the Babylonian Empire. So we, we see that he has this vision of beasts. In the Old Testament, a beast, especially in prophecy, is almost always a metaphor for an empire or a, a government system, a world government or a kingdom. And Daniel's going to see a lot of what Nebuchadnezzar saw, but instead of seeing a great, ornate statue these are hideous vicious beasts that are just consuming and i think part of the difference in those two visions is a lot of times people in power see their power as far more noble than it actually is god sees this not as kingly and ornate and majestic he sees it as destructive and consuming so we're going to work through these real quick. Verse 4. The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked at the wings were plucked off 
It was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Again, if we've been walking through this together, you're like, oh, that's like Nebuchadnezzar. He lost his mind. He went out. His hair was so long it was like feathers. Do you remember that uh, reference? And, but then he came to his right mind again and was restored to his position. What's awesome about this picture of Babylon is we today have the privilege of knowing information about some, some legendary archaeological digs in Babylon. And I'm told that if we were together to take a field trip today to the British Museum in London, we would get to walk through the entrance of Babylon and the entrance of the royal palace. And what we, I'm told, we would see is a giant lion with wings. How cool is that? Okay, I got to stay on. Verse number five. Behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. So... The Medes and the Persians, right? The Persians were much greater than the Medes every time they're uh, recognized. They're not balanced in power. They're unbalanced in power. It had three ribs in its mouth. Sounds delicious. Shout out to the patriotic pig. Shout out to Heim Barbecue. That's not a reference of what it's talking about here. It was told, arise, devour much flesh. And this is representing the Medes and the Persians here. Uh, we saw them conquer Babylon uh, in chapter 5. Um, this idea that it was a bear, th- this was quite the army. There's one story told where in one army, the battle of, uh, or one battle rather, the battle of Xerxes, they had two and a half million soldiers in that one battle. And they did indeed conquer three humongous empires. Uh, King Cyrus of Persia and his son conquered the Egyptian Empire, the Chaldean Empire, and the Lydian Empire. People way smarter than me told us that from history. We think that's the three ribs in its mouth. Just interesting. Verse 6. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So again, just like Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, statue... We believe this is next a reference to Greece. It's a leopard. That's really fast, right? Alexander the Great conquered the world so quickly that even in his arrogance, he was surprised. He did not become a ruler till age 19, and by age 30, he had conquered most of the world. Came back to Babylon, right here, the setting where Daniel's having these visions. And it says that he was having a party. We think maybe he died of alcohol poisoning. We're not sure. But he died very young in his early 30s. And history tells us a lot about Alexander the Great, including that he wept because he had no worlds left to conquer. Which isn't completely true. There were other worlds he hadn't conquered yet. But that tends to be how we think of our own accomplishments, isn't it? He died in his early 30s. And then it says four heads rose up. What's interesting is history tells us that in his death, he said, give my kingdom to strong people, to those who are strong, was actually his language. Um, They thought he meant his generals. There were four of them. So the great uh, Greek empire was divided among his four generals who only fought with each other. What's awesome about that, the reason that's noteworthy is Daniel's having this vision of the leopard who devours and then four heads come up on it. 
200 years before Alexander the Great was born. Is that not cool? I think that's cool. So even if you don't dig prophecy, that's amazing. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. Remember uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, statue, his vision, iron represented uh, the Roman Empire. It devoured broken pieces, stamped what was left of its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So this idea that it's representing Rome, uh, horns has to do always with uh, violence or power causing damage uh, in prophetic visions throughout the Old Testament. So those are his four visions. Quickly turn or scroll to chapter 8. We're going to very quickly look at a couple other visions because these two happen, uh, even though they're two years apart, they're really a lot of the same vision. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, that after... Uh, after that, which appeared to me at the first. So I'm, he's having a second vision here. You with me? We're going to move quickly through this. So lock up. Let's, let's move. Let's, let's talk about these prophecies. Uh, look, look at verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Again, the Medes and the Persians, right? The Persians were more powerful. Every time there's these visions, we're, we're seeing the difference between the two. Again, what's amazing historically we know that the ram was like the symbol. It would be what the eagle is to an American, right? Uh, they said a king would never address his troops without wearing some form of a ram garment, like a ram would be emblazoned on it. Their coins had rams on both sides, one standing on one side, one laying on the other. Like rams are a huge deal. Uh, we know now, uh, thanks to archaeology, um, representing the Medes and the Persians. Before any of us knew that, Daniel had that vision. Verse 4, the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. If you track how the Medes and the Persians took over the world, amazingly, that's exactly how they did so. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who'd rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great until verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, like from Greece. Across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So this goat is moving so fast, its feet don't touch the ground. So again, our leopard vision. Hang with me, because this gets cool. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. This is a goat unicorn. (laughs) Alexander the goat. Come on. I got one giggle. Come on. You're waiting to see if I'm going to say that was bad. I I know. I'm sorry. Okay. I saw him come close to the ram. He was enraged against him, struck the ram, broke his two horns. The ram had no power to stand before him. He cast him down to the ground, trampled on him. There's no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Again, the four generals. Alexander the Great suddenly dies. The four generals come back after him. So, again, a repetition of this. Quickly, we just got to ask, how could Daniel have known that all this was going to happen? Either thousands of people lied to themselves and lied to you. And this was actually written way past the time of Daniel, even though the book of Daniel is shown in antiquity to already existed. And they amended it later. It's stapled to the back of the scroll. Somebody went down to Office Depot and were like, add this, quick. 
There's only one answer to how Daniel could have known this if he did indeed know it. There is a God who reveals truth to people who bear his image. But, so that's what happened. That's what it's about. We kind of already talked about in chapter 3. That's why the quick review. Here's what's new. You ready? Here's what hasn't been something we've, we've covered yet in the book of Daniel. Here's what's different. Verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, toward the glorious land. Can anyone think of what a Jewish elderly statesman would mean when he says the glorious land? So this one comes who is going to head towards the, the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. Some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down the ground and trampled on them. Uh, skip down to verse 24 describing this little horn. His power shall be great. But look at this phrase. But not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction. He'll succeed in what he does. He'll destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. God's people will suffer under this regime. Verse 25, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he'll become great. And without warning, he'll destroy many. He'll even rise up against the prince of princes. But that won't be the end. He shall be broken. But by no human hand. So there's something else going on with his rise to power, and there's something else going on with his destruction. You with me? Who is this little horn that is being discussed? Quickly, two things. One is, this is a clear reference to one of those generals who indeed would, from one of the four kingdoms uh, of Greece after Alexander the Great dies, Antiochus, Epiphanes absolutely became the violent ruler who overtook much of the world. He did go south, and he did go east, just like Daniel said this little horn would do. Egypt and Israel. And when he came to Israel, he was ruthless to God's people. Secular historians believe this guy existed and actually call him the Hitler of the Old Testament. When he entered in Jerusalem, he murdered at least 80,000 Jewish people. Elderly women, pregnant women, children. After his carnage, he issued coins in Jerusalem with his own image on them and inscribed were the words, King Antiochus, God in the flesh. If you can try to think back to your Sunday school days, if you don't know much about the Jewish belief system, hear me when I tell you he set up a statue of himself in the Holy of Holies behind the veil and demanded that the Jewish people would worship him in the temple and demanded that they would ceremoniously eat pork in the temple of God. Which for you and I were like, we just made a joke about ribs. Pork is delicious. What's, what's the problem? 
the horror of that, the offense of that, utter blasphemy against God, the abomination of desolations. And then, out of nowhere, he got a stomach ache, lost his mind, and died suddenly. Just like Daniel predicted, his death was not by human hands. It happened quickly, it happened abruptly, and it happened without any obvious understanding. Clearly, Antiochus, Epiphanes, was the specific fulfillment of this prophecy. And, however, but, dot, dot, dot. The later Bible writers would refer back to this as a picture of something else. And specifically, a couple people that we put a lot of stock in their words referred to this little horn. Someone by the name of Jesus the Christ, the Apostle John, and the Apostle Paul all referenced this person. And they reference him as a vision of the Antichrist. Much of the book of Revelation is built on these visions here in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. But look back again at verse uh, chapter 7. rather. Scroll back, flip back, turn back, or just look up at the screens. Verse 8 of chapter 7. I considered the horns. Behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of... Of man and a mouth speaking great things. So he had human eyes, but behind them there was something else, like a power that wasn't human. You follow me? There's something in the invisible realm going on in this guy in the meantime. And when it says he's speaking great things, don't hear that like a Westerner, like he's speaking great things. It means he's speaking great things of himself. His mantra was, I'm awesome, you should all worship me. You're like, I saw that status on Facebook this morning from my cousin. Yeah, I don't know. There's this idea of the Antichrist, of there is a person historically that fulfilled a lot of these prophecies, and yet there still is one coming. But make no mistake, in every age... In every culture, in every window of history, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work and alive and well. So there's both the person and then there's the spirit of the Antichrist. We do believe that that there is one coming. There will be a visible, physical leader. And sometimes Christians get really wrapped up in, is it this guy or is it this person or is it them? And, oh, what could it be? And we almost seem a little obsessed with that. Um, And and I love what, what Skip Heitzig said. He said, the Bible instructs me not to look for the Antichrist, but to look for Jesus Christ. I'm looking for his appearing, his coming, and his kingdom, which means I only look for signs of the Antichrist as an, as an awareness of when the king is coming. I'm only interested from that perspective. However, if you remember that verse said that his deceit would prosper, 
through his influence. In his mind, he would exalt himself. The spirit of Antichrist in every single age questions God's truth and exalts human beings above God. So everywhere that people question if God is true, I believe the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. I believe in university classrooms and in entertainment studios and in broadcast rooms for podcasts and in corporate boardrooms and for sure on social media platforms where people are being led to question God, to question God's word, to be puffed up with self-obsession. I believe that's the calling card of the spirit of the Antichrist. I'm not saying Facebook's the devil, Bobby. But I do believe there is a supernatural, it's not human. There's a supernatural power at work in the world trying to deceive people against God. The reason that we talk about Antiochus, the reason that we talk about The fulfillment of these prophecies is this. The more we see the fulfillment of those past prophecies, the more we can trust the future fulfillment of his future prophecies. And that's where we're getting towards the point of all of this. It's important that we see how past prophecy has been proven true. But that means I can trust that future prophecy will prove true. And so the part of this prophecy that's not been fulfilled yet is where I want us to spend the rest of our time together this morning. Okay? So, just like the generations who came after Daniel went, Oh, look, there's Alexander. Wow, he's really great at killing everybody. He's moving like a leopard. He's like a goat unicorn. They watched the fulfillment of all of this. So we look to verse number 9. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. <laughs> oh, if you don't... Do you, did you hear me? <laughs> the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. I don't think God actually is in a wheelchair It's that this image was so profound and overwhelming and glorious. We're like, dude. Which is the same description from Revelation chapter 1 when John the Revelator gets a vision of Jesus Christ. Hair white as wool. Eyes like flames of fire. John gives us even more details. Feet were like burning brass. The ancient of days that Daniel saw is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Sitting in his throne. And just like I believe there was an Alexander the Great, I believe the Ancient of Days is coming again and will be seated on the throne forever and ever. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books We're open. Again, we hear Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and the saints are in heaven. The angels are worshiping and there's this multitude that no one can number. 
I looked then because the sound of the great words the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. He's still running his mouth until the last moment. Its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And I do not delight in the destruction of people who bear the image of God. But I do delight the day that the Antichrist will be once and for all shut up and cast out. And the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And I think that might just could happen sooner than we realize. I love the name Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days. If you're not a parent... Of a kid old enough to smart off. Then the phrase ancient of days might not mean the same thing to you. Ancient of days. Is a biblical version of. Kid I wasn't born yesterday. You with me? Beth Moore said this. God leans into the back seat of human history and says. I wasn't born at all. Well, yes, ma'am. Nothing gets by him. He's not falling for anything. Nothing surprises him. He never learns anything new. He never misunderstands anything. Nothing ever catches him off guard. There's never been a time that he wasn't fully in charge and fully aware. He's the ancient of days. His hair is white like snow. He carries the authority and wisdom of the ages. His clothes are white like purest wool, which means he is pure. He is wise. He is righteous altogether without the slightest imperfection. And his throne blazes in fire, which it means it consumes anything that is impure before him. He alone is worthy to judge the nations. And here's the question. What describes our attitude towards that prophecy? Is it stressful or is it peaceful? Is it fearful or is it hopeful? If you are a child of God today, the fact that Jesus will sit on the throne forever and ever means you will get to rule and reign with him. It's supposed to mean incredible peace and incredible confidence for us. Even when life doesn't make sense, or maybe especially when life doesn't make sense, we believe Jesus is coming again. And everything that is wrong will finally be made right. The big, ugly, horrible things, and even just the little things that, it's not the way it's supposed to be. We'll all be made right. We've made this phrase really common. And we've worked hard. And I think it's a good thing. We've worked hard to, to kind of trend the phrase in our generation. It's okay to not be okay. 
And listen, I, I want to be the kind of church where it's okay to not be okay. We are honest about our hurts and our struggles and our habits and our hang-ups. Somebody told me they didn't come to church last week because if somebody would ask them how they were doing, they would have cussed in the foyer. And I said, get your to church. I'd rather you cuss in the foyer than stay home. And here's the deal. It is okay to not be okay here. But we've gotten so stuck in that lane that I've just been compelled I've been waiting for this morning just to say out loud to the people of God, and it's okay to be okay. Like, it's okay to look at mess and say, I'm not defined by that. It's okay to be smack dab in the middle of family drama that doesn't control you. It's possible to be in the midst of an economy that's struggling and not lose sleep at night. It's possible to work for someone who who isn't trustworthy or isn't safe or maybe doesn't respect you and still be okay. It is okay to be okay. Jesus is coming back. His word is trustworthy, and he has proven himself again and again and again to be worth trusting. And between now and when he does come back, he is on the move to make good out of everything. And in the meantime, he's on the move... To make good out of everything. There's not a moment you will step into that is not under the authority of the Ancient of Days to birth good for you and for His glory. He won't become the Ancient of Days. He is the Ancient of Days. And He's promised to work everything together for good. If you read this chapter, uh, these two chapters on your own, you'll see that Daniel's response to this is he is sleepless and turmoiled, not comforted. He's troubled. We have the great privilege of reading this in the year 2023. And here's what we know. When Persia, when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon, do you know that Persia specifically rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and they paid for it, which was crucial in the time of Christ. When Jesus walked by and went, tear it down, three days, build it back up, he's pointing to the temple built by these evil conquerors. The lion with the feathers built the temple. Then God raises up the the empire of Greece, And what did Greece do for that world, that time in history? They gave the world Koine Greek, an almost universal language, easy to be understood, so that one person could tell another person the good news of the risen man from Nazareth. Without which, without that language, humanly, we don't know how the gospel could have spread like it did. Doesn't make any sense. But not just the language, feet were prepared with the preparation of the gospel. Then the Roman Empire came in and gave us the greatest road system the world had ever seen. You could actually get from point A to point B. Most people lived and died and never knew there was such a thing as point B. They just lived in point A. The point is, God does everything. Everything for good purpose. 
And that's not just true of past history, of grand stories. That is true of your life today. God is at work for good and for his glory. And the news gets even better than that. Hold on. Just pause. This morning as we sang, sometimes I don't like staying in there. I wish that wasn't my assigned seat. Because sometimes I see some of you in worship, and I know what's going on. I know what's on your heart today. And I see you declaring that God is able. That him defeating death isn't just his good news, it's yours. That death was never going to hold him, so it's never going to hold you too. And I just want to tell you, he's building road systems and producing a language that good news can travel directly to your heart today. Like the thing that you're suffering, the thing that you would run from if you had the feet to do it, he's at work in that. Now let's talk about our future. That's our present. I hope somebody in this room gets as excited about this as I am for just a minute. Okay. Verse 17. He's getting the summary of this vision. The four great beasts or four kings shall rise out of the earth. Yep, got it. Verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom... And possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. (laughs) Time out. The ancient of days is going to be like, here's my kingdom to his saints who did nothing to conquer the kingdom. Like we did nothing. We didn't break any horns off. We didn't crush anything. I'm telling you, if I see a lion without wings, I intend to run faster than you. If there is a bear today, I'm out. And if there's a leopard, I'm dead. I play no role. I got nothing to offer. Maybe we misread it. Daniel asked for a little more explanation about this Antichrist. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Oh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Until. (laughs) Until. Until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion 
and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High God. Like, not some glorious animal that makes you scared, just people. Just people of the kingdom. And their kingdom, not his kingdom, somebody help me, not his kingdom, their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. Mine? Yep. And all dominion shall serve and obey them. I'm so confused. The ancient of days is going to hand us the keys to the kingdom. And here's the question. What in the world did I do to deserve that role in the kingdom? How in the world am I worthy of this? What I believe is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who came. And he faced the lion, and he faced the bear, and the ram, and the goat, and the leopard, and all of the world's kingdoms with their mighty power. But he did not come with some majestic imagery. He came as a lamb. Could have come as a dragon. And not like a unicorn lamb with a mighty horn. A lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was pierced by those terrible beasts. He allowed himself to die for people. And in that death, what he did was preemptively break any of the power of the Antichrist or of Satan himself. And knowing that this is the true history behind the uh, true history helps me walk into every moment with a different kind of perspective. Like seeing the Ancient of Days ruling and inviting us to reign with him does not keep me from pain today, but it does keep me from panic. The Ancient of Days is on the throne. Every setback, failure, disappointment, and sin, he redeems and advances his goodness. The Ancient of Days does not lose his way with a cancer diagnosis, a broken marriage, a wayward child, a broken body, or financial ruin. He's at work in all of it. And all of it is under the authority of the hand of God. And then he's going to invite people who played no role in the victory to share in the kingdom. And we actually saw that already once this week. So I said at the beginning, not at all seriously, that we should all get World Series rings for the role that we played in the Texas Rangers in the World Series. And there was like actually no applause because you know that that was ridiculous. But there is someone 
who played no role in the Texas Rangers World Series who is going to get a ring. His name is Matt Bush. Those of you who are true baseball people and are into the Rangers, you would know the story of Matt Bush. I'm a football guy, and I'm a basketball guy, and I go to a baseball game if somebody else is paying, and that's the extent of my enthusiasm. Until playoffs. So I didn't know the story of Matt Bush. He's considered ancient in professional sports. He's 37 years old. He was a selected first in the draft in 2004 by the San Diego Padres. At the time, he got the second largest signing bonus, uh, three and a quarter million dollars, largest signing bonus ever given, second largest bonus ever given by the Padres. And then he got into a fight outside of a bar in Arizona and got suspended before he ever played a game. Finally started playing and broke his ankle, missed half the season. He was playing shortstop. They moved him to pitcher. Seemed like things were promising. Tore a ligament in his pitching elbow in August of uh, 2007. Had Tommy John surgery, missed the rest of that season and all the next season. Just when he thought he had hope again, he got in trouble again threw a baseball at a woman's head in a bar parking lot. Then he was traded to the Toronto Blue Jays. They put him on a zero tolerance policy because he'd had such a a reckless beginning. He was signed on February 10th and on March 30th he got arrested. Intoxicated at a party. They released him the next day. Nobody picked him up in 2009. In 2010, Tampa Bay Rays picked him up. Maybe his career was going to be salvaged after all. Then he stole a teammate's car while driving drunk. Hit an elderly man on a bicycle and actually ran over his head. Thank God the man was wearing a helmet. He could have killed him. Was sentenced to 51 months in state prison actually served 39 months. And then on December 18th, 2015, the Texas Rangers signed him to a minor league contract in the parking lot of a Golden Corral in Jacksonville, Florida. His work release program only allowed him to go to his job at Golden Corral. So they had to try him out in the parking lot, sign the contract on the hood of a car. But he actually kept himself clean. It was a a restoration program, if you will. And people wondered, how did it work this time? How did he get this second chance? And what people didn't know is that his father quit his job and on his own dime came and lived with him, traveled to every away game, never left his side. He was with the Rangers until uh, 2022, went to the Brewers. And in July this summer, we signed him to a minor league contract, brought him up the last day of September. He got signed by the Rangers. Never threw a pitch. Never walked on the field except to celebrate. And he's going to get a ring 
And you know what he's done? Kind of been a disaster. And that's my story too. That I'm invited to share in the kingdom of the ancient of days through nothing good that I have done makes no sense. There's not a rubric you can look through and say that I belong to be a part of that. That I would be handed a World Series ring is ridiculous. Somebody must have messed up somewhere. Or maybe the one who sits on the throne really is that good. That he puts to death any illusions of us earning and conquering our way to be with him but instead just invites broken people to share in his kingdom. If every, ever, if, if every other one of these prophecies has been fulfilled, then I believe that one will be too. I look at the brokenness in this world, and I look at our lack of solutions for it, and all I can think is I'm really glad somebody good is on the throne. I'm really glad that one day this will all make sense. And I don't believe that because I think I'm one of the good guys. I believe that because I believe in a Savior who rescues broken people at their worst and gives them World Series rings. This morning, the point of these visions is not to diagnose charts and graphs. It's to see a glorious Savior who rules over all of history and he won't stop today. And he won't stop tomorrow. And he actually invites us into his rule and his reign just out of his good pleasure. Just out of his goodness and his grace. And the only response I know to that is to know that I've accepted the invitation and given my life to him. And if I have, it's to praise and celebrate him until he comes again gets to praise him like he's the king to praise him like he's better than any other system that's ever existed it's to praise him for inviting me into this with nothing to show for it on my own and that's what we invite you to do this morning